you have your Bibles, I'll invite you to turn with me to John chapter 17. John chapter 17, beginning in verse 1 and going through verse 5. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find that on page 960 of the Pew Bibles. And if you're in need of a Bible and you can't afford one, please take that as our gift to you this morning. In John chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. Last week I made mention of the 14th chapter of the Chronicles of Narnia. It's titled The Triumph of the Witch. You'll recall that a little boy named Edmund was guilty of betrayal and therefore subject to death. You see, the emperor beyond the sea had put magic into Narnia at its beginning. This deep magic gave the white witch who was ruling at the time the right to kill the boy because of his crime. Aslan, again, we saw the great lion, the long-awaited king, the one who was on the move. He did the unexpected as he exchanged his life to save the treacherous boy. He did this on the eve of the great war against the witch. At first glance, then, it all but secured her victory. Not only is the war over, over, it meant that evil prevails, that all that is good is lost, that those who put their hope in the righteous king were put to shame. That would be true, of course, if the book ended there, but it didn't. Chapter 5 is titled, Deeper Magic from Before the Dawn. The stone table where Aslan was killed, where the magic that the witch appealed to was written, it cracks as Aslan roars back to life. There, Lewis writes, shining in the sunrise, larger than they had seen him before. Shaking his mane stood Aslan himself. Resurrection. Susan and Lucy are there. These are Edmund's sisters. They moved from weeping and sorrow to weeping and joy. They embrace him. They kiss his mane. And they're asking him, what does this mean? Like, how is this possible? To which Aslan responded, that the white witch she had known about deep magic that was there from the beginning. But if she had been able to look further back into the darkness, into the stillness, before the dawn of time, she would have known that there was deeper magic still. He says if a willing substitute gives himself up for a traitor, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. The emperor decreed before time began that the death of one would lead to the undoing of death for all. That the death of the innocent would pardon the guilty. That what at first looked like loss was victory. Do you see it? The emperor had set up the kingdom in such a way that through one event, one self-devasing, sacrificial, paradoxical event... The future king would not only secure the kingdom, but demonstrate his trustworthiness as king. Is there any question that a king who gives up his life for his treacherous subjects is a good king? Is there any question about whether or not he is worth bending our knee to? I trust the allegory is obvious enough here, but to be clear, as we'll see in John chapter 17, before time itself began, 
the father appointed the son to be king over all things so that he could give the gift of life to those who do not deserve it. And what's so shocking, what's so paradoxical about the nature of Christ's rule is that he and we come into his kingdom by means of his death. His death is the undoing of death that not only secures our life, but our trust in him. Is there any question that he who gives up his life for his treacherous subjects is a good king? Is he not worth us bending a knee to? John chapter 17, beginning in verse 1, if you're able, I'll invite you to stand with me in reverence for Holy Scripture. Jesus spoke these things, looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you since you gave him authority over all people so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. I have glorified you on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. You may be seated. The farewell discourse that began in chapter 13 came to a close in 16. Today we begin what is commonly called the high priestly prayer. It makes up all of chapter 17. If you want an outline for it, as you're trying to wrap your mind around it, in verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself. In 6 through 19, Jesus prays for his disciples. And then in 20 through 26, Jesus prays more broadly for the church. That is for all those who would come to believe in him. Another way you can kind of grab handles on the prayer or the text is that Jesus makes six different requests in his prayer. I would encourage you to read the text later today and to make note of what they are. In our text, these first five verses, we get the first request, which is that he and the Father would be glorified simultaneously. Now, all of this is commonly called the high priestly prayer. We could just as aptly call these first five verses the high kingly prayer because it lets us peer into the nature of the kingdom of God as Jesus prays for himself. We see why he's the king. We see how he became king. We see what he rules over. We see what he does with his authority and therefore why he's worthy of our trust. This brings us to our big idea this morning. The father appointed the son to be king so that he could bring his saving rule to all of God's people. The father appointed the son to be king so that he could bring his saving rule to all of God's people. It's a little longer, so I'll say it one more time. The Father appointed the Son to be king so that, for the purpose of, so that he could bring his saving rule to all of God's people. I want to give you two reasons from the text this morning, 
two reasons to trust and to submit to Christ's rule. Two reasons to trust and submit to Christ's rule. First, he's the king of grace. And second, he's the king of glory. Jesus is the king of grace and he's the king of glory. First, brothers and sisters and non-Christian friends, trust and submit to Christ's rule because he is the king of grace. We'll begin in verse 1, kind of a precursor, sort of pre-sermon here. We're going to bring out a little bit in verse 1. Jesus spoke these things, looked up to heaven, and said. Jesus spoke these things as a gloss for everything that Jesus taught in chapters 13 through 16. We kind of put it in seven buckets. He taught us about, his, about love, his love for us, our love for one another, what our love for him should look like. He taught about his departure to the Father to make a way for us to go to heaven. He taught about the Spirit's subsequent coming and ministry to us. He taught about our union with him. He taught about the world's hatred and persecution of us. He taught about his victory over the world. And he taught us about the effectiveness of prayer as we struggle in a world that hates us. Jesus preached an extended sermon and notice. As soon as he's done preaching without any pause or interval, he does what? He prays. Verse 1, Jesus spoke these things, looked up to heaven and said. That Jesus prays aloud is a gift of grace to us. He does not have to pray aloud. He does so for our benefit. That he prays and what he prays is instructive. His requests themselves are revelation. We'll get to what he prays in just a bit, but let's think a little bit first about that he prays. Calvin comments here, now he most properly betakes himself to prayer for doctrine has no power if efficacy be not imported to it from above. What we're doing here does not matter if God himself does not match us with his power. Why do the pastors pray on Sunday mornings long before we arrive to church? Why is it the first thing we do when we get here at 8? Why do we pray during our service? Why do we pray before the preaching? Why do we pray when the preaching ends? Why do we pray as we drive home? Why do we pray in our staff meeting for the previous service and the upcoming service? Why do we pray for the services in our elders' meetings? Because apart from heaven's efficacy, our preaching has no power. Brothers and sisters, we are always at God's mercy, asking him to do what we cannot for ourselves. We need him to enliven, to illumine, to instruct, to convict, to encourage, to build up, to move. Brothers and sisters, you can prep an incredible lesson. You can lead a Bible study with all skill. You can give the perfect answer. You can catechize your children. You can cite the right text. But apart from the Spirit's touch, your words don't cut the heart. This means that ministry doesn't start and end with your study and teaching. It begins and ends with prayer. Because fruit can only come from God. Jesus has not taken a break from ministry to pray. Jesus is praying to minister. <laughs> For Glormar. Jesus is not taking a break from ministry to pray. He is praying to minister. 
Prayer is not something that we do while we wait for the real work to begin. It's not something we do to fill in the gaps. Is prayer the whole of ministry? No, and yet apart from it, there is no ministry. NBC, we want to be a praying people because we want to be useful and fruitful to God. Don't be lulled into thinking that nothing meaningful happens at our evening services. It's one of the most important meetings that happens in the entire city. As the saints of God gather in his name to pray for each other and for the world. We pray to minister. Jesus goes from praying to preaching seamlessly. I want to just pick out one more thing that stands out about this. Notice he goes from talking to the disciples to talking to God without skipping a beat. Talking, 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 praying. It should be normal for Christians to move from talking to each other to praying to God. There's nothing awkward about it. Okay, a sister shares how she's been ensnared in sexual sin. Can I pray for you now? Without skipping a beat, you pray for her. A brother shares about how anxiety has been overcoming his heart. Pray for him. A member shares about losing a job, about ongoing depression, about bitterness in their heart, about a fight with their spouse, about loneliness in their bereavement. Pray for them. The movement from hearing needs to praying should be like the movement from inhaling to exhaling. We begin to meet their needs in prayer. Jesus goes immediately from teaching to praying, from being with his disciples to taking their needs to God. I praise God that we have a culture after the service where members stay late to talk to each other. This is a sign of brotherly and sisterly affection and care. What I'm praying we would see more of is 30 minutes after the service has ended, not only are the members still here, but you can see heads bowed. Like moving from inhaling to exhaling, meeting need by beginning with prayer. Jesus goes from talking, talking to praying, bringing the disciples into the presence of God. Okay, that Jesus prays is instructive. What Jesus prays is instructive. This brings us to the meat of the sermon. It's his first request in the high priestly prayer. You see it there in verse 1. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. The hour has come. We're on the eve of his crucifixion. The hour that we first heard about in John chapter 2 and 4 and 5 and 7 and 8 and 12 has finally come. The hour is, John 12, 23, the appointed time for the Son to be glorified on earth. Uh, the word glorification is dense. In the Gospel of John, if you want kind of a definition, it's a stand-in for the re re revelation of Christ that yields adoration. Okay, it's revelation that yields adoration. It's people coming to see Jesus for who he truly is and then responding to that news with trust and love. It's seeing that yields submission. It's wonder that leads to worship. Jesus is praying that the Father would make known through the events that are about to transpire who he really is. You see, the glory of Christ is veiled, so to speak. Jesus is asking, he's praying that the Father would pull it back so that 
all might look upon him and be saved. But paradoxically, this glorious revelation in the Gospel of John is his crucifixion. So when Jesus prays to be glorified, it's not just that he's praying to be revealed so that people can look and be saved. It's shorthand for, Father, the time has come for you to crush me. Father, crucify me that the world can see that I'm your son, that they might look upon me, believe, and be saved. He's saying, Father, our, our plan has come has come to its moment. It's time for you to continue and to complete my descent from exaltation to shame as a means of displaying our glory that the world might be saved. Why would Jesus pray this? What kind of person in their right mind would pray this? Well, it takes us to the very heart and nature of the kingship of Christ. He is a king of grace, which is to say that he rules not for his benefit, but for the benefit of his people. If you got one thing this morning, it's that Jesus is appointed as king and rules not for his own benefit as though he were lacking. He rules for the benefit of his people. The cross was not his only act of service. It's a paradigm for how far he'll go for his subjects. Verse 1, glorify the Son. The reason we find in verse 2, since you gave him authority over all people, so that. Since you gave him authority over all people, so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him. In asking the Father to bring about the passion, he's only asking the Father to do what they had predestined to take place before time itself began. This has always been, and I mean always, been the plan. The Father chose the Son in eternity past to be the King who died so that we could live. Appointed as King before time began. Paul shows us this in Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Paul writes, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. As we consider election from our perspective, we say that God chose us before time began. As we consider it in God, the Father chose the Son and the Son will to be our Savior. Okay, in, redemption, in theology, we call this the covenant of redemption. That is an eternity past the Father gave to the Son a people and made him their head and redeemer. The Son willingly, joyfully received us as his gift and committed to undertake the plan of salvation, which would mean becoming man and then lamb. The Father chooses the Son and then chose us in him. He gives us as a gift to Christ. 
Now we've seen this throughout the Gospel of John. We saw this in John chapter 6 especially. Hear that again beginning in 37. Jesus says, everyone the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me that I should lose none of those he has given me but should raise them up on the last day. Brothers and sisters, what this means is that your salvation in Christ is not God's plan B. As though God were fumbling about trying to do his best to save as many as he could after the beginning was a disaster. No, God chose and appointed the Son to be Savior before time itself began. He chose you before you chose him. He loved you before you loved him. This means your salvation is secure because it is a gift. This means that Jesus Christ, your king, is your savior. In fact, the entire reason that Jesus was given authority and appointed his head was not for him, but for you. Let that sink in. It's not as though God the Son lacked purpose or fulfillment or something to do that God appointed him to be head. The benefit is not for him, it's for you. He was appointed over all people, again, why, verse 2, so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him. Jesus is the king of grace. Calvin comments on this verse. He says, Christ receives authority not so much for himself as for the sake of our salvation. And therefore, we ought to submit to Christ, not only that we may obey God, but because nothing is more lovely than that obedience sits, it brings us eternal life. Is there anything better for you than submitting to the one who uses his rule to give you life? Jesus was appointed the mediator between God and man, the king over all flesh, the head of the church, not because he lacked anything, but because you do. His appointment is not a gift to him. It's not a promotion. It's a gift to you. The son gains nothing by becoming man and suffering for sins. We gain everything. This is the gospel. The kingship, the mediation of Jesus is given to him for us. He's made king to save. Abraham Lincoln in the Gettysburg, Gettysburg Address famously described our nation as being of the people, by the people, and for the people. This, of course, is the hope of democracy that all of our elected officials would take our interests seriously, that they would be constrained by them. But as wonderful as democracy is, and it is, it cannot guarantee a single candidate who only ever acts for the welfare of their people. It can only produce those who are torn between the preservation and promotion of self and the interest of the voter. Now, we didn't vote for Jesus. He doesn't take his commands from us. His platform is not catered to what we think is good and right and just. No, he's God's appointed king, but God appoints him as king. Why? For our good. Appointed as king to give the gift of life to those who lack it. Jesus is unlike any other king because he only ever 
uses his authority to bring good to his people. His kingship is not a promotion. It's not an improvement to him. It's a demotion. He uses his authority to lay himself down for the benefit of us. He uses his riches to make the poor wealthy, his voice to speak on behalf of the voiceless, his power for the weak, his righteousness for the rebel, his health for the sick. He gives up his life for those who are dead. Jesus is a king unlike any other because he rules not for himself but for his people. Paul puts it like this at the end of Ephesians chapter 1. He says, he, that is God, exercises power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler, authority, power, dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything. Why? Verse 22, again, he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church. Christ is made head and redeemer and king of all for the benefit of his bride. Our king is a king of grace. He uses his rule to lavish love and riches on his people. He doesn't step on us to get where he's going. He brings us up with him. He's the king of grace. He's appointed over all flesh to give the gift of life. Jesus explains more about this life in verse 3. He says, he prays this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. Now Jesus throughout the gospel of John has been promising life. We see it first in John 3.15, eternal life mentioned. It's famously there in John 3.16, for God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. So we know that this life comes by faith alone, in Christ alone, we know that it keeps us from perishing. That's the opposite of death. But what is it? Well, Jesus tells us in John 4, 13, that those who possess this life will never go thirsty again. They're satisfied. Jesus tells us in 5:21 that this is resurrection life. It overcomes the grave. Jesus tells us in John 10, 10, that it's the abundant life. It's good and overflowing Jesus tells us in John 28 that those who possess this life are secure in him. So up to this point, we know that Jesus gives the gift of never-ending, death-defeating, forever-satisfying, secure life. Jesus here presses more deeply almost to the why or the how that's possible. In the gospel, Jesus reconciles us to, brings us to, connects us to, unifies us with God who is life himself. Jesus in the gospel shares himself with us. Verse three, again, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. We were made to live 
which is to say that we were made for God. You see, when you make something for it, it defines it and its purpose. If you made an axe, let's say with the perfect dimensions and the right materials, it'll be really good at chopping wood and not very good at anything else. Try writing an essay with an axe. Try playing golf with an axe. Try sitting down for dinner on an axe. Okay? It's not made for those things. Its purpose is cutting. In fact, it tends towards cutting in everything that it does. You clean the dishes with an axe, you'll have broken glass. You were made to live in relationship with God. With every decision you make, with everything you do, you tend toward, you try for life or for happiness. The problem is we try to live outside of God, which is like trying to use an axe to brush your teeth or clean your car. It wasn't made for that. You were made for life in God. Life anywhere else is frustrating and futile and sinful. The point of the gospel is relationship with God that gives us what we were made for. Life. Satisfying life. Happy life. Never-ending life. Secure life. Eternal life simply is relationship with God. Notice how Jesus describes it. Eternal life is not a place. It's a person. It's God. It's a relationship. It's to be unified with God. It's being with and like God. Eternal life is God-centered because there is no life apart from God. God is what makes life life. God is what makes heaven heaven. If that sounds boring to you, it's because you do not understand God. God is, as theologians have described, a boundless ocean of being. God is supremely and fully satisfied in himself. God possesses every possible perfection in the most maximal way. God doesn't lack anything good. He is happier and more content and more teeming with purpose than we could possibly imagine. And God wants to share it with us. Brothers and sisters, you were made to live, to be happy, to enjoy fellowship, to be satisfied. And it can come from God and God alone because he alone is and has life to give. It can come from knowledge in Christ alone because he alone could con conquer sin and death and mediate God's life. Eternal life, heaven itself, is about knowing the triune God and Jesus Christ who he sent. Eternal life is about knowing God. Now, make no mistake, this knowledge is not simply intellectual. There will be plenty of people who thought that they knew God, especially in a place where Christianity is cultural. There will be plenty of people who thought they knew God, and yet after death they will not experience life. This kind of knowledge is relational. And yet it begins and grows and ends with knowledge. All good relationships are marked by knowledge and understanding. Think about the people that you know and love the best. You know their mannerisms, their likes, their dislikes, their quirks. You know their scent even. You know the way they walk. You know when they're well. You know when they're lying about not being well. You know what makes them tick. You know what ticks them off. This is relational knowledge. It 
comes with being together. It's driven by a desire and an interest for more. Brothers and sisters, do you know God? Do you want to know God more? Augustine put it well when he said, the more that we know God, the more we tend toward life. Okay, the more we know God, the more we live, the more we commune with God, the happier we are. The more we love God, the more we're filled with joy, the more we submit to Christ's rule, the freer we are. To know God is to live, and conversely, to trend away from God and his knowledge is to trend away from life to death. The more we try to find satisfaction and purpose and joy elsewhere, we will find frustrating because it is not intended to give life. If you're visiting us this morning, you're not a Christian. This would be the main thing that we want you to hear, that God created you out of love. He wants you to live. Far from perhaps the caricatures you think about him as constraining joy and being a straitjacket of life, God is overflowing with life. He wants you to live, and the only way that you can live is in him. He loves you so much that he sent his son to die for your sins. He is so full of life, and he was so innocent that the death that he had, the grave, it could not contain him. He rose from the grave. Jesus today offers you life. It comes as a gift. We would love to talk with you more about this after our service. Find one of the pastors or any of the members here. We would love to even tell you how we moved from once not having life in Christ to now believing in him. Life is found in God alone, and God in his grace is eager to share it with us in Christ. It's the entire reason he's appointed head and ruler. He lives to intercede for us. He rules to save his people. He became king for you. Jesus is the king of grace. Jesus is also the king of glory. Jesus is the king of glory. We come to the first request in John chapter 17. Before Jesus prays for any of the disciples or future believers, he prays for what? His glory. Now what I especially want us to see is that Jesus being the king of grace and the king of glory do not stand in competition. It's because God is so glorious and amazing and satisfying and because he wants to share the knowledge of him with us that he appointed the son to be the king of life. It's because God is so glorious that he pursues our good. I think about how different that is for us. If I pursue my glory, my renown, my reputation, my import, it tends to be good for me and for no one else around me. Think about some of the greatest kingdoms or largest kingdoms that have ever been on in our world, the Mongolian kingdom, the Third Reich, 20th century communist China and Russia, People who have been eager to display their glory and have done so by means of shedding blood. But God, God on the other hand, displays his glory, pursues his glory by pursuing the good of his people. It's as the son lives and dies and rises for sinners that we see just how wonderful God is. It's the act of saving us from destruction that demonstrates just how majestic and merciful our God is. The display of his glory is wrapped up in the pursuit of his people's good. 
And yet we mustn't confuse or conflate the two. Jesus pursues God's glory, not our glory. John 5, 41. Jesus rules for his people's good, yes, but not as we define it. Jesus is after first the glory of God that overflows the good of his people. Jesus doesn't take his commands or cues from his people, but from God. We see this in verse 4. I have glorified you on earth by completing the work that you gave me to do. Jesus brought glory to the Father. He revealed him and made much of him by completing the work that God gave him. We've seen this throughout the Gospel of John. Jesus only says what he hears. He only does what he sees. He came to carry out the Father's will alone, John 5, 30. Jesus brought glory to God by obeying him and more specifically by carrying out the work that he gave him, the cross work that he gave him. Jesus is speaking here of past tense, what's about to happen, the passion, because the hour has come and its completion is a certainty. Jesus will finish the work that was given to him, appointed in eternity past, to die for his people, to give them life, and it will resound in glory to the Father. We pass by this in verse 1, but notice, the Son's pursuit of his own glory is tethered to the pursuit of the Father's glory. It's like an unbroken circle of revelation and adoration. The Son makes much of the Father who makes much of of the Son who makes much of the Father who makes much of the Son. They do this in the power of the Spirit. Verse 1, glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. The controlling instinct behind all of Jesus' actions is the glory of God. Think about it. The first of six requests is what? That the Father and Son would be glorified. Jesus is constrained by, compelled by God's glory being made known in the world. His acclaim among the nations, his fame among all the peoples, it is the reason behind the reason. Again, six requests, he begins with this one. Glory of the Father and Son, as Matt Superdoc reminded us this week at evening service, what ought to stand at the head of all of our requests, what ought to motivate every other petition What all of our other desires are subservient to is the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, when you pray, when you pray for difficult situations, do you often pray first that God would be most glorified in the events? This is another way of asking that the Father's will would be done and not our own. Just as Jesus sought first, so he prays first for the glory of God. He wants God to be made much of in the world. Now to be clear, because I think this can be confusing, when we speak about God being glorified, we don't mean that God currently lacks anything. Like his riches are leaking out and we're trying to help him get back what is his. You might not be rich and try to become wealthy. You might formally be rich and try to get it back. God doesn't seek glory because he somehow lacks it or lost it. To glorify God is to put a magnifying glass over his character so that we can see what's there. It's to turn the volume up so that we can hear what's true. It is simply to reveal and then to rightly respond to him who should be adored. 
We're wanting to make much of God and worship him and him alone. Jesus revealed and made much of God by reflecting him in the world as his perfect image become obedient man. He glorifies the Father by obeying him and more specifically by obeying him to the point of death on the cross. This brings us to the paradox of glory there in verse 1 that Jesus prays for. As Jesus is praying to be glorified, he's praying that the Father would crush him. The cross at first, it looks like all shame and all failure, but for Christ it actually means glory because it's what we look back to and see that our sins are washed, that death is undone, that the enemy is crushed. The cross resounds in glory to the Father because it speaks of his wisdom, that he could unite humanity in God, that he could be both just and the justifier. It reveals his holiness, that he will not let the guilty go unpunished, that all wrongs will be made right. It speaks of his love as he gave up his only son so that he could save sinners. The cross is the place of glory because it is where God demonstrates just how loving and wise and righteous and holy and merciful he is toward us. The cross is the place of glory for Christ on earth because it is a place where the one appointed to be king in eternity passes sins to his throne by means of death to give life to his people in grace. The cross is glorious as it displays God's character and his plan of salvation. But it's not the son's final stop or even the fullest display of his glory. The cross leads to resurrection, which leads to ascension, which leads to exaltation over all things. This is what we see in verse 5. Jesus prays now, Father... This is on the other side of him completing the work. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory that I had with you before the world existed. At the center of Jesus' message in the Gospel of John is that he's God the Son become flesh. He's come into the world that he created as man and Messiah. But what the flesh or his humanity does is it both reveals him, we've seen his glory, John 1.14 and John 1.18, and to those who are spiritually blind, it conceals him. You see, you don't look at Jesus and think God. You think Jewish man because he is. You think teacher, you think prophet. Even though his works transcend what a man can do. The cross likewise reveals God and his glory, and yet it paradoxically veils him. You don't look at the cross and think God. You don't think Messiah in fulfillment of our scriptures. You think criminal slave. You think failed revolutionary. You think lunatic. What Jesus is asking for here in verse 5 is the final uncovering, the complete unveiling, the open display for all to see that he is God, the Son incarnate, that he is indeed the word who spoke all things into being that he is true God become true man, that he is the king chosen in eternity past to die at the fullness of time so that he could give life to his people. Father, reveal me. Reveal and exalt me. Reveal and exalt me in such a way that all will bend a knee in worship. 
Okay, when Jesus prays for glory in verse one, he's praying for glory in this world. Crucify me, crush me so that all who belong to me will look there and be saved. When Jesus prays for glory in verse five, he's praying for glory in the world to come. Exalt me so that all flesh, those who believe and those who do not, will look to my throne and confess that I am the Lord. Jesus is asking, if you look there, verse 5, to be glorified in the presence of God with the glory that precedes and exceeds the creation of the world. For the glory that he had before the dawn of time. Now, we don't want to misunderstand what Jesus is saying. Jesus did not give up glory to become man because he did not cease to be God. God did not cease to be glorious. He did not lack for a moment. God the Son possesses at all times the fullness of the glory of God. But he became man also, and therefore, according to his humanity, inglorious. He became weak. He became fragile. He became temporary. He became finite. He became, for a season, lower than the angels. At one and the same time, true God and true man, truly glorious, and on the cross, inglorious. Jesus is not asking for glory he doesn't already possess. He's asking to be glorified now, not as God, but as man, to ascend the throne as our glorious and gracious mediator that all will recognize who he really is is. Paul explains this descent and ascent in Philippians chapter 2. He says they're speaking of Christ in verse 6, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Obedience to the point of death on a cross. This is the shame of servitude for Paul. This, paradoxically, in the Gospel of John is the glory Jesus is after in verse one. But then he turns to his exaltation, the glory that's coming in verse five. This is what Paul speaks about there in Philippians two. For this reason, for his humbling himself to the point of death on the cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, it comes full circle because the Son became man and then became obedient to the point of death on a cross, the Father has exalted him so that one day all will recognize that he is Lord and revere him. It's revelation that leads to adoration of all. On that day when the heavens crack, when the sun descends, when death is undone, when the judgment falls, all creation will find itself on his face before the glorious one, Jesus Christ. There will be no confusion about who or what he is on that day. It will be plain for all to see that he is God, become man for us and for our salvation. It's because of his passion as man 
that he, the God-man, is praised as Lord by all, appointed in eternity past to die and to rise, to rule and to save. All of this abounds to, it leads to the glory of God the Father. Brothers and sisters, what we're doing this morning is just a foretaste of what we will do for eternity. For all of time, we will praise the triune God for displaying his character in creating and redeeming us. We will sing loudly of his love for us. We will shout of his mercy toward our sin. We will extol his victory over Satan. We will wish we had more crowns to throw before his feet. We will not get over his character or work for a second. As we behold him, it will not be lost on us that he the most perfect and majestic and glorious one was made low so that he could lift us up with him. That he was made king to die so that we could live. That he did all of this not to benefit himself but his people. Brothers and sisters, on that day we will not be able to get low enough or lift our voices high enough. We will cry out with all of heaven, worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. We will strain to, to cry out and to scream and to sing blessing and honor and glory and power be to the one seated on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. Glory be to him for our sake became king to die. Glory be to him who by his grace has given us life. Glory be to him who has possessed glory forever from since before the dawn. All glory be to Christ. Let's pray. God, we proclaim that your son is the glorious one. And we marvel at your great love toward us that the Son became a man and no benefit to himself but only for us. That he lived for us, that he died for our sins, that he has risen from the grave, that he has ascended on high, that even now he ever lives to intercede on our behalf. God, would his grace not be lost on us? And would you open our eyes to see just how glorious both he and you and the Spirit is? God, we pray that with the whole of our lives we would seek to glorify you by obeying you and making much of you. Would our Sunday mornings be a foretaste and preparation for the worship that awaits? We pray all this in the glorious name of Jesus Christ, the name to which before we will all bow one day. It's in his name we pray. Amen.